your dreams. Hello and welcome to Mormon Stories. This is John DeLynn. I'm very excited to have you with us today for part two of Inside the Mind of a Mormon Apologist, my interview with John Lynch. We would like to remind you to please go up to mormonstories.org and comment uh, on this uh, podcast. Tell us what you like, what you didn't like, etc. And without any further ado, let's continue with this interview with John Lynch from FAIR, the Foundation for Apologetic Information and Research. Um, I had a, a bit of an epiphany uh, last evening, in fact, while I was driving home as I was thinking about and contemplating some of the the I, well, let me just put this in context. I was just reading uh, the book on David O. McKay and the rise of modern Mormonism. Yep. And you know, as I was reading the book, I felt to to criticize the authors in my mind about how much they seem to expose some of the the real struggles within the leadership of the church. Uh, in particular, for example, President Benson, when he was um, when he was coming back from his political um, hiatus as uh, Secretary of Agriculture under President Eisenhower. And he came back into the quorum and he um, led a very dogged fight um, declaring against communism. And he made some comments, for example, that were, um, that were unflattering to some of the members of the church who were Democrats, including uh, Hubie Brown and, and Eldon Tanner, who were both members of the First Presidency, who were Democrats. And here he he made it a statement equating socialism, uh, equating socialism with communism, and being godlessness and that sort of thing, and you know that people made I think even he he, has, he associated with the John Birch Society, which criticized even President Eisenhower of being a, a communist and this sort of thing, and these it made these very uncomfortable. And as I read these sorts of things, and you know President Benson later was served as president of the church. And he was, you know, in my mind, he was one of the most benign presidents that that served in the church in the sense that, you know, everybody feared that he would bring out these political views as soon as he he uh, was was made president of the church, and that simply did not manifest. Right. I think when the mantle of responsibility fell upon him, he fell very comfortably into that role and filled it quite quite wonderfully. But my, as I read that book, I realized. You know, you could see evidences of the characters of men. And as you read the book, you could also see the evidences of inspiration within those men and their desire to guide and to lead things correctly. And as I read all of that, it struck me that, you know, the parable of the wheat and the tares is not necessarily simply a parable of the good followers and those wicked people who are, will, at the end of the world, be burned, Right. Yeah. I think that there's as much wheat and tares within us as individuals as there are between us as individuals. Some of us are wheat and some of us are tares as the as the as the parable goes. And I think that the same could be true. You know, the parable says basically that um that you know, we'll let the wheat and the tares grow up together because if you try and pluck up the tares right now, you'll you'll uproot the wheat also and basically you'll lose the field. And in that sense, you know, what you're really driving at is the question of, is it possible for flawed men or men with flaws of character and personality and otherwise to be inspired men who truly are entrusted with the keys of God in hand when necessary can act as oracles? And I think the answer to that is true, is yes. 
that that flawed men absolutely can lead this church. And, you know, the Lord did not come down and say, now that the church is restored, henceforth and forever, all leaders will be perfect. He never made that statement. And I don't think that we should, it's unfair for us to expect that once a man has had hands laid upon his head and he's set apart to an office or ordained to an office in the priesthood, that all of a sudden his flaws of character should diminish. And I think that Heavenly Father allows um, you know, even some of our weaknesses and prejudices to remain because if he was to uproot them, then he might take away a great deal of good at the same time. And so, you know, I, um, I think that, the, that that's kind of a, a, a long response to your, to your question. I, I think that, in short, these brethren have a difficult line to walk. They indeed are human given a great deal of responsibility that they need to execute. They need, a, they need to focus on what is good and right and true and point towards that. And um, I'm not going to be one to judge them for how they do on that. I leave that to those to whom, they're to whom they have to respond, and that is to Christ himself. And I'll, I'll leave them to, to answer to that. But I will say that I understand, I think, why they would have desires and tendencies one way or another. And I even understand why perhaps the Lord allows men with certain weaknesses in areas of their lives to be called as bishops, stake presidents, seventies, apostles, or the president of the church, and still be those individuals whom the Lord has chosen and entrusted with keys and powers and rights and privileges to see, receive inspiration. I just have to say I totally agree with you. I, I um First of all, I, I believe the brethren are incredibly good, good-hearted, honest men, and I believe their job, their jobs are some of the hardest jobs I could ever imagine. Um, so I, I do think they deserve a ton of respect, infinite respect, um, for the the decisions they have to make every day. Um, when you, um, I just want to ask one clarification. When you were talking about the Greg Prince book. The David O. McKay book. Are you saying you were frustrated or sad that he talked about the uh, the weaknesses or the or the struggles within the quorum? Well, I think that that the the way I would describe it is is that I was I, I found myself questioning, you know, what what are the, what is their aims? I, I began to question, you know, why why are they including this? And I thought that it was a little bit of airing of dirty laundry and that I thought, you know, the way that they wrote the book, in all honesty, is written kind of in a, in a, in a um, this is a historic perspective. Yes, we had access to, you know, kind of inside information, but it's really for Mormons and non-Mormons alike. If it was directed to a purely believing audience, then those things that were included, you know, uh, for the most part, people would say, I don't, don't include them, that sort of thing. As, as more, the more I read it, the more I realized that, you know, the, there's nothing to fear by including them. Um, and in fact, it actually confirms for me um, what I just said, that these, that these men with their own strengths, you know, mixture of strengths and weaknesses can indeed be um, divinely inspired. Yeah, and I, I just want to second that. I, I know Greg Prince really well. I, I had him in my home last week, actually. He, he was here. And um, I not only had him teach Elder's Quorum for me, because it's on David O. McKay, and 
there are a few people who maybe know him better. Um, but also, we held a fireside here in Logan where he spoke, and I just I think that there's a value in talking openly about the brethren and the struggles that they have, because how better to teach that lesson that that these brethren are incredibly good but have weaknesses, and we should all become immunized to that fact and not surprised by it. And the only way to teach that lesson is to actually talk about some of the struggles and weaknesses and give them perspective. But I can guarantee you that when Greg Prince talks about any of the brethren, he does it with a net um, communication of, of ex respect and admiration and testimony and inspiration. But, but some, you know, I've often wished there'd be a lesson on, hey, don't expect the prophets to be perfect, you know, because then we'd be talking about it openly. But there are still a lot of members who kind of never figure that out uh, on their own because it's never taught or discussed in a, in a church setting. Well, I think that the lesson that would be helpful um, would, would be a lesson on what makes a flawed man a prophet as opposed to what makes a prophet, what allows a, a prophet to be a flawed man. You know, the, the re, and, and I realize that that maybe sounds like a bit of an argument of semantics, but um, for me it's, it's an important distinction because we start out as flawed individuals and we're called to positions of responsibility and then we seek to fulfill those responsibilities based on our experiences and, 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 and nature that we've developed to that point. We're not, we don't leave who we were when we're called to these positions. And, you know, we oftentimes grow into those positions over time. And I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, there's a difference between um, Christ himself who would come down, who has the benefit of the visions of eternity, for example, and how he might conduct himself, versus a man whom he would call up out of the world and ask him to come and be his witness and to help drive and direct a work which is simultaneously... Um, challenging, inspiring, difficult, and um, saddening all at the same time. Yeah. I just wish, I agree with you, I just wish we as a people were a little more comfortable with this conversation. If I tried to have a conversation sometimes in Sunday School or Elders Quorum, and I've done it, I've, I've had, I once had a lesson on on this exact topic, and there's still a high level of discomfort um, with any sort of reference, even though Joseph Smith himself, you read his personal history, he mentions his weaknesses a ton, and he talks all the time about being chastised by the Lord and being having to repent for his weaknesses. He seemed quite comfortable talking about his weaknesses. Well, how many times was he chastised in the Doctrine and Covenant? Yeah, a ton. Put out there for all the world to see. Yeah, I'm just saying culturally within the church, and I don't have any a suspicion or feeling of conspiracy by the brethren at all um, yeah. on this point. I do wish we as a people were a little more comfortable talking openly about this issue so that we could sort of culturally, comprehensively put it behind us and say, look, Peter denied Christ, Judas betrayed Christ, David committed adultery, get over the fact that <laughs> the, the, the you know prophets are infallible. They're not, but... Even being men, they can still be incredibly inspired and um, worth following to the ends of the earth. Well, you know, who can read 
First um, and Second Peter, for example, and and not be inspired by the teachings that he put forward. And yet, at the same time, we read how he had very serious reservations about um, extending baptism and full fellowship to people who were not proselyte Jews, who had not already converted to Judaism prior to um, being converted to Christianity. And, you know, um, even after he received his vision um, on the rooftop, which taught him that the gospel was to be brought to the Jews and the Gentiles, even after that, there was an instance in which Paul took him to task for the fact that he sat aside from from the uh, from from the Gentiles in deference to the Jews for fear of offending the Jews, and Paul took him to task. Um, now, whether or not that was Paul's rightful place to do that or not, I won't say. But I will say that it demonstrates, even in the New Testament times, that these were great men who had their who had brought with them their own set of circumstances and experiences that caused them to react in um, understandable ways. And there were ways that maybe we do or don't agree with today, but how can we look back with the benefit of hindsight and criticize those people who didn't have that benefit of hindsight at the time? I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a mistake on our part. Right. So let's shift gears a bit. I'd like to talk a little bit more about FAIR um, in particular. And I'd like to begin by asking you, well, I'll give you a little context. I, when I read Fawn Brody, uh, No Man Knows My History, uh, I was obviously really disturbed, um, but I but I had consolation because I knew that Hugh Nibley had written a response called "No, ma'am, that's not history." So I was super excited, and I had a ton of faith. I thought Hugh Nibley's our man. He's a genius. He's brilliant. He's a scholar. Hugh's you know Hugh's going to take care of me on this one, and I opened up his pamphlet or book, and I can't say he helped me at all. Uh, I felt like it was more of an ad hominem attack. I felt like it was esoteric. I didn't feel like he dealt with any of the merits of the accusations or claims in that book. And in the end, I was really disappointed in that response. Now, on the other hand, you know, uh, I've had many friends leave the church over the Masonic Lodge issue. And I interview a Greg Carney from FAIR, and I walk away incredibly uplifted, um, totally inspired, made me feel as though the Masonic issue not only is a non-issue and shouldn't affect people's testimony at all, but that in some ways I felt convinced that it, the, our connections with the Masonic Lodge was actually a blessing to our church. And so my question to you is, is there such a thing as bad apologetics? And if so, how would you characterize bad apologetics versus good apologetics? Well, the answer is yes. <laughs> There's bad apologetics. There's no doubt about that. I mean, um, well-intentioned individuals who feel the need to fill an answer um, oftentimes fill the, you know, fill the question with an answer that is, um, in retrospect, not the right one or not as accurate or not put in the, in the tone that things should be. So, um, yeah, I think that there's bad uh, uh, apologetics that takes place. Um, I think that, you know, to the, to the question of Hugh Nibley, you know, Hugh Nibley made the statement, he says, I refuse to be held responsible for anything I wrote more than three years ago. <laughs> you know, um, 
he he was a firm believer that the objective was to move forward, and he readily admitted that what he was really doing was he was seeking to find answers. You know, um, I had a friend of mine who, when we got back from our missions, he was my first mission companion, and when I met up with him, he told me that he had uh, was in a student or in a uh, in a local ward in Provo. And I was in a student ward, and I asked him how he liked it. He says, I like it very much, he says, but I have a hard time with my Sunday school gospel doctrine teacher. And I said, well, why is that? And he says, well, he's a professor at BYU. And he says, the problem is is that he says, it's like he's you know, using us as our guinea pigs, trying out his, his pet theories. And he says, it's all over my head. I said, well, who is he? He says, Hugh Nubbly or Nubbly or <laughs> Nibbly or something like that. And, you know, I, I came unglued. I said, you, you've got Hugh Nibbly as a gospel doctrine teacher, and you're complaining about it? Um, you know the. I think that that you know Brother Nibley did a great deal to bring scholarly reasoned approaches um, to apologetics in the church. Um, just as I wouldn't hold the brethren to any standard of perfection, I cannot hold Brother Nibley to it. I'm sure that there are mistakes that he made, conclusions he arrived at that were wrong. I think that what he did do is he brought a methodical reasoning deep research, professionalism um, to, the, to the defense of the church in ways that, uh, that is still impacting us today. I think that the gentlemen at farms who uh, are criticized on the one hand and acclaimed on the other, I think that, that for my part they do a fabulous job. I think that what they do is remarkable. I think that you know guys like John Gee and John Tvetness and others, um, Lou Midgley and the, and the like, in as much as they're right, they're doing a fabulous job. And in as much as they're wrong, they did a pretty good job because you know they're they're a lot smarter than I am. Okay, wait, but yeah, I, I have a joke. I have a joke coming on. Are you apologizing for the apologist? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, you know, it's funny because we've done a few firesides, and uh, when I put up what's an apologist, you know, on the on, on the slides and things like that, the first thing I tell them is that being an apologist is not, is uh, not is ha- not having to say you're sorry, but. Uh, no, you know, I, I, I wouldn't apologize for the apologist, but I would say that, um, you know, don't expect us to be right. This no. is, you know, okay, this no. is something that's moving forward. Okay, so, yeah, I, and I, I like you, Nibley. I think, I think especially his writings, like Approaching Zion, where he talks about materialism, environmentalism. I mean, I, I think he's inspirational, um, what, what true Christ-centered living is. So th- my question actually had nothing to do with you, Nibley, although I, I do appreciate your thoughts about him and, and perspective, but I want to make sure you understand the question wasn't so much about Hugh Nibley. It, I'll restate it or, or rephrase it in a different way. If you were to sort of counsel the next generation of apologists on what the right and the wrong approaches are, what would be the things you say don't do? If you're an apologist, stay away from doing these five things. What would those five things be? Boy, you kind of put me on the spot with that. Oh, okay, I would say, okay. I don't mean to. No, put no, you it's on the okay. I, I'll um, I'll answer the best I can, and just understand that uh, that it's a it's an off the cuff response. Um, I, I would I don't know if I can come up with five, but I'll tell you a couple of things that um, that I would recommend to anybody that's looking to be an apologist. The first thing I would say is when you're dealing with those people with whom you disagree, don't attribute motive to their actions. I think that as soon as you begin to attribute motive to another person's actions, um, you begin to interpret their actions and cut off from from yourself a level of understanding that allows you to approach the issues appropriately. Okay. 
um, that's that's one thing. I think the other thing is um, you don't have to address the attacker. I think that in, in as much as somebody is perhaps attacking, and there I go and I say that as if I'm attributing motive, right? Um, but um, in as much as somebody brings a criticism, focus on the criticism, not on the messenger. Um, you know, if if somebody is open to dialoguing with you to to gain understanding, by all means, entertain them. Um, and do what you can to, to bring that. Um, the second thing, the third thing I would say is... And so wait, I are you saying don't do ad hominem attacks, basically? Absolutely. Okay, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. Absolutely. I, I think that they're counterproductive. Now, that's not to say that there aren't valid reasons for bringing into question. If, if somebody comes out, for example, and says, well, I've examined this evidence, and my professional opinion is that, you know, it leans to the left. And yet you come along and you find out that, you know, um, the credentials which cause you to believe that their opinion is worth valuing is actually discredited, that they don't have the credentials that they claimed. Then to bring that out, I think, is a valid statement to make. But that doesn't change the fact that whether or not their argument is true, whether it's truly leaning left or should be leaning right, it does. You know, the, the fact that they don't have those credentials is irrelevant. But if you, if you look at, at any reasoning, if you're going to rely upon a person um, and their opinion with a greater, greater weight than your own opinion because of some experience or credential that they have, I think it's, it's reasonable to question those credentials. Um, I think in some cases it can be reasonable to question motives in instances where a person is approaching, for example, a subject as an open-minded um, nonpartisan when in reality you go back and you, 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 you look at the history of their behavior and you find that no, in fact, they're not nonpartisan. Okay, so you're saying if someone's misrepresenting themselves, you can call them on it. Absolutely, and I think that that, that, goes, that cuts both ways. Right. Okay, but... But, um, you know, in general, you agree that ad hominem attacks are bad, they're counterproductive, that the arguments should be, you know, uh, evaluated based on their merits. Clearly, we not, are better served when we not do Not calling that. names or, or, you know, acting unchristlike to the to people who are discussing the issues. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So that was, I, I, you were going on to a third thing, and I... Well, the, the, the third thing, um, which I was directing towards, was that when people are doing research don't do your research one of the nice things that I've one of the things that I've really enjoyed about the presentations that I've seen at fair for example um, have been that the very people who are doing the presentations are oftentimes pointing out the very weak the the, 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 the weaknesses in their own arguments um, and they're doing that because I think that we're improving in our scholarship um, they're not coming in with a preset bias and they're looking at the world in a view in such a way as to prove that all things you know um, are evidence of the church being true for example but that they come at it and they say alright for example um, a, uh, a particular scholar might come out and, and, and take an argument um, on I don't know pick a subject any 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 subject DNA in the Book of Mormon for example and they might be looking at um, why they believe that it's a non-issue. And as they're going through their arguments, they actually bring out the fact that, um, you know, look, as we're looking at these things, we have to accept the fact that, yes, the evidences are that the vast majority of the studies conclude that um, the American Indians have Asiatic descent. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, but then they go on to point out why, even with that evidence, 
it is not something that um, proves the Book of Mormon false. It just leaves it again in the category of inconclusive. Science does not back it up one way or the other. Right. So, you know, if I was to make a, a suggestion to an apologist, whether or not he's an apologist or a researcher, I, and I think that there's a difference too, by the way. There's a difference between a researcher and an apologist. An apologist is somebody who goes out and looks for researchers, uh, research that basically confirms the fundamentals of what their belief is that helps them defend, whereas a, a researcher themselves is just interested with facts. And so in as much as you're a researcher who happens to be an apologist, I would say don't let your tendencies as an apologist influence your research. Let your research stand on its own. Right. And if it happens to coincide, accept it. If it happens to contradict it, um, then deal with it appropriately. You know, Put it on the back burner. Let it settle until you gain more information and see how it really comes through. You know, the, the, the thing that I'm looking at as an apologist is that um, I'm looking to help bridge the gap of time between a person coming to a, a question and them finding an answer. Right. Um, because it's not always there. It's not always immediate. Sometimes it takes a long time. Are there issues still in the back of my mind where I'm saying, I don't have all those answers? Yeah. And I've heard, I'll tell you, I've heard probably just about every argument against the church. Right. And that's not to say that I feel like every answer has been locked, you know, locked tight, fixed, and bundled up. But I have such a basis of faith and experience within me that confirms for me the authenticity of the restoration, the, 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 the truthfulness of Joseph Smith as a prophet of God, and the restoration of the keys which reside to this day in the leading men of the church, including Gordon B. Hinckley. I have such a faith in those things that it allows me to bridge the time between when I develop the question as to, well, now, wait a minute, what, how does this fit? Not knowing where that puzzle piece fits and waiting until other pieces fill in around it to where I can see how it, how it plays into the picture. Right. Okay. So those are three things. I, I could probably, if you press me, I could probably come up with a couple more, but I would say that those are the, the three top. That's, that's good. No, that's good. I just want to say from the, from the communities that I'm in, involved in, I, it's sort of unfair, but I think the, the critics of FAIR uh, sort of expect FAIR to live up to a higher standard of, of uh, comportment than even they're willing uh, to live up to. And, you know, th obviously there are a lot of places that are full of um, slanderous, uh, you know, verbiage and ad hominem attacks. Yet I do think that the, the times when fair folks do uh, re resort to ad hominem attacks, they do themselves a disservice. And so I, I, would, I, I, really... I would say for the most part I agree with you yeah. that, if a, that if a person feels like, the, like they have to resort to anything that I would consider to be unchristlike behavior, they do themselves, they do the church, and they do fair disservice. Yeah. Um, one of the things you asked me, one of your first questions was, you know, tell me about fair, how is it structured, how is it organized, and I told you that, well, some people would claim it isn't. <laughs> um, you know, the reality is that fair is a group of it's not a homogeneous group, you know, as as some of our critics call us, you know, call not just fair, but the church in general, the morgue, you know, like it's some, right. you know, cybergenic, you know, Mormon organization called the morgue that everybody acts and marches the same way. There's a great deal of diversity of opinion and thought within fair. Right. And um, when I first became associated with it, I was surprised because there were a couple of individuals um, that were associated with it that... Uh, were very much antagonistic in their approach 
to non-Mormons. And I didn't like that. I didn't care for it much. I've tried to exert my influence um, to lessen that wherever I can. Right. And to encourage, you know, FAIR to be a place, a safe place for people to come to get answers. And even, you know, what, the one thing that we don't do, and, and in fact, one of the things that we made a conscious decision to do several years ago was FAIR as an organization will not answer critics. We will answer, find answers for criticisms, but we will not answer critics. Right. And I don't think that that's our place. There are people associated with FAIR, and they join FAIR sometimes because they like the answers, and it gives them fodder for them to go out and, in some ways, attack the critics that they feel attacked by. And they, they seem to get some glee out of that. I, you know, I, for one, I don't get satisfaction out of that sort of thing. And I think in some senses that's, uh, you know, that's reflective from my past, you know, that I've, I've been a missionary more than I've been an apologist. And in a lot of ways, every missionary is an apologist. You know, they're out there to defend and proclaim the truth. But, um, you know, the reality is is that attacking other people does little to, to engender confidence, trust, or faith. And um, I think it's, for the most part, it's counterproductive. So don't bash as a missionary or as a fair yeah, it doesn't. What good does it? What good would it do? I'm with what, you. What really, other than to close a mind or harden a position? I'm with you. I'm with you. So, um, you know, how how big is your assessment of the problem of people leaving the church over intellectual issues? If you had, so I'll ask you the question in two parts. If you had to estimate how many people annually are leaving the church. You know, what what would you guess a number would be? This is sort of uh, answering the question of why you believe it's important that you exist. Um, and then, you know, can you talk about your success rate as an organization or even some anecdotal stories about how you're helping to stem that uh, tide? You know, the I guess, first of all, I'm not privy to any kind of statistics uh, from the church or otherwise that would, you know, lead me to believe that um, there is any actual number that can be attached to why people leave. I know that the church performs its own studies on um, activity rates. I do know, you know, you can go back and you can look at some of the some of the st statistics and data um, that the church itself has put out in terms of its growth and that sort of thing. There's been other publications put out um, by individuals in the media that indicate the same. And, uh, for example, in Germany, uh, there's actually been negative growth in the church. I know that Germany has suffered a great deal because of um, online attacks in German against the church, and it's been a great challenge for a number of the German saints. Mm -hmm. um, statistically, I couldn't tell you how many people. I would, you know, doctrinally, I would say that uh, maybe what FAIR is really trying to do is to, is to provide a reason for return uh, for the one, and uh, while the ninety and nine are safely within our chapels, so um, would you say it's a okay? So you're, so I agree that the the one is super important, but would you would you characterize the problem of sort of internet anti Mormonism as being a statistically significant problem for the church or insignificant? Is it a big problem? Is it a little problem? Is it something? I think it's a growing problem. So it's getting bigger. I, I well, I think it has a ten, it has the potential to um, as more and more people become accustomed to gaining information online. If you go online and you type in Mormon, um, you know, uh, or Latter Day Saint, or 
you know, Brigham Young or something like that, there's generally a lot more unflattering sites to come up than there are flattering ones. Um, you know, those that would attack and undermine the, the faith of the church uh, or the faith of, of members. And I, just as a, <laughs> I just did it in Google. Yeah. If you type in Mormon, the Mormon.org comes out first. Yeah. Then LDS.org second, then Family Search, and the fourth is Recovery from Mormonism. So that's pretty good. Right. I've heard that you guys actually have technology specialists who have worked to optimize the internet search engine such that that exact sequence happens. Is there a truth to that at all? Uh, no. <laughs> I, I wish there was. I'd, really? I'd love to see um, Fair get more get better visibility out there. That when people raise questions that. Uh, you know, we might be easier to find. For the first several years that we were in existence as an internet site, um, people had to kind of go looking for us, really. Right. It wasn't that easy. And it, a lot of that has to do with the way that um, websites show up on some of these search engines. A lot of it has to do with how many links that they have to other high-volume traffic sites and things like that. So, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, we, we don't have specialists that are out there trying to get um, trying to get that you know that result any specific result um, but uh, you know I think it probably wouldn't hurt us if we if we tried to be better at uh, at managing our our online efforts and getting the connections um, out there such that we you know the the positive sites rise up in the sure, search engine sure Okay. Um, so success stories. Well, you know, there's been a number of, of things that happen. We have one of the things that we have on the FAIR website is Ask the Apologist. And, you know, the, the thing is, the true effects of what we have, we'll never know. We, 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 we won't know. The only times that we get positive feedback is when somebody takes the time to tell us. And we've got a number of those. We've got a you know, kind of a collection of people of thank yous from people saying, you know, you have no idea how you've helped me. I, I could give you one anecdotal story which I find a bit interesting. There was a gentleman up in Canada uh, based on the Ontario mission and um, this individual was taking the discussions with the missionaries and he um, came upon, he, because he's up in the middle of nowhere up in Canada, it's far north, I don't even remember the, the location, I could probably find out the city for you, but he was so far remote that his primary access with the outside world was basically the internet. He had satellite connection. Mm -hmm. And he started to have questions because of all these things that, um, that he found that were unflattering of the church. And um, we were in actual con actually in contact with the mission president at the time. And the mission president, through his assistance, um, instructed, you know, instructed the missionaries to direct that gentleman to fair. And the gentleman went on a fair and, to his satisfaction, got his answers that he was seeking and made the, the active decision that he would go forward and be baptized. We receive, um, on a daily basis, I would probably say anywhere from 5 to 10, um, sometimes serious, sometimes more critical or challenging inquiries into, into our apologist list. And um, virtually every time we've got a sincere seeker, when we respond, we're told directly that our the fact that we were there made a difference. Hmm. Scott Gordon, our president, uh, told one story of him 
at a, at a fireside and a woman came approached him and said, you know what, I got these four pamphlets. I want to know what you think about them. And he, she hands him these four anti-Mormon pamphlets. And he looks at them and he says, well, I've read this one. He says, this one makes a couple of good points. He says, but, you know, he says, you got to understand the context. And he makes a couple of comments about it. He says, this one, he says, I wouldn't even bother reading. That one's garbage. He says, this one's actually kind of funny. And by the time he got to the third one, the lady says, oh, okay, that's all I needed to know. And she was done. Just the fact that she knew that people had answers that they'd been looked at was reassuring. And I guess in some ways that kind of goes back to your earlier question about do I wish that the church had some, uh, some you know, apologetics school or something, you know, the, 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 the difficult questions type of thing for, uh, for Institute. And, um, you know, I, I, I'll go back and just say that I don't think that that's the role of the church, although I do think that BYU gives opportunities for individuals to study that type of thing if they choose to. But, um, you know, in some ways, that experience of Scott uh, with that woman, just her having the assurance that there's people out there that have looked at these things and whatnot was enough for her to say, all right, I'm going to let my faith continue to prosper. And it's probably not unlike your experience with Nibley. You know, oh, Nibley's got my back on this one. You know, when, when that one particular question was, or when you'd read, uh, was it Brody? Yeah. 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 No, I, I totally agree with you. Just just <clears throat> when you come upon the issues to be able to find someone who says, yep, I know all about it, and here's why, uh, you know, it doesn't bug me. I think yeah. that's huge. So yeah. I, I totally agree on that. Would you, would you say that apologetics poses a risk of being a gateway to apostasy for some who kind of get sucked in and then sucked out? Have you seen that happen where people become arch defenders but then somehow lose their way and become arch enemies. You know, I have not seen that. Um, I've not had that experience where I've seen people, you know, try and enter into the world of apologetics. I think that um, there may have been people who, um, I, I guess I could see from a psychological perspective, somebody coming in to fare with doubts, um, finding answers, and then being zealous um, kind of trying to continue to feed their their justification for staying in the church with, you know, kind of feeding off of, of the information in apologetics and uh, never really fundamentally changing in their heart, never really getting, strengthening themselves in a faith standpoint, but kind of just treading water. And at some point, you know, they maybe stop or pause for a moment and they stop treading water. I suppose that thing could happen, but I don't think that that would be caused by apologetics. I think that quite the contrary, apologetics was what allowed them to continue to tread water for some time, and it was mm -hmm. um, the fact that they perhaps were inevitably going to sink anyway. Right. We'd like to thank you again for joining us at Mormon Stories for this interview with John Lynch from FAIR, the Foundation for Apologetic Information and Research, Inside the Mind of a Mormon Apologist. Check out FAIR at fairlds.org. And most importantly, please check us out at mormonstories.org. Comment on this podcast. Tell your friends about us. And um, stay tuned for part three of this interview with John Lynch. Thanks again for tuning in. Bye.